We trust that you are good and your love endures forever because that's what your word tells us of, as to who you are. And that Jesus arrived on the earth to accomplish a work that we can't do on our own. And so, Father, now as we look into your word about this encounter with a man by the name of Nicodemus, Lord, help us to hear the truth, to accept the truth, and to be happy to live in faith in Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. I've been asking you to come along with me on this journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, It is my self-confessed favorite among the four Gospels. Uh, Again, I will uh, also confess, I don't know that you're allowed uh, in the sight of heaven to have a favorite book of the Bible, Uh, and so if I get in trouble with that, I will will be very apologetic to the Lord of heaven about it. But but when it comes to the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, I find myself landing in John most often. And and there is a couple of reasons as to why that is, and one of uh, the three or four reasons why I land in John more often than the other gospel stories is actually this particular passage that our friend Kyle has read for us in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Now, I've been thinking about this particular section of John uh, through the lens of how it is that, that Jesus brings healing to the hurting. And healing is a word that is loaded with all sorts of meaning. When we think about healing, we primarily think, and, and rightly so, about our physical bodies, that we, uh, it, something's broken, something's not working right, I, I've, I've got a diagnosis, I've got a hip or an elbow or a something that is sore, or, or I've got some kind of infection and I want God to heal me. And when we say that, we are asking God to do something very specifically. When we want healing, we want our lives to be restored to their perfect condition. That's what healing is. It's not just that He gets you kind of back to 85% of normal, but healing in the sense of of the biblical term and the biblical idea means that everything is set back perfectly. And there is a type of healing that is being offered to us that goes so much beyond the physical realm of who we are biologically. And so, I just want to take this passage, and I just want us to walk through it carefully and and highlight some ideas along the way, and then hopefully give us a landing strip that we can all come together on to to see what the truth of this passage is. So, just just start there with verse 1 with me, and I'm just going to work my way through here. It says, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This helps us to understand who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is not just a guy who had a couple of questions, who decided he was going to find a a spiritual teacher on the countryside to see if he could figure things out. Uh, This tells us that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees is a religious group of leaders that arose in the people of Israel a couple of hundred years earlier. So, if you know a little bit of the timeline and the chronology of the Bible, there's actually a 300-year gap between the last of the Old Testament prophets and then when Jesus uh, is incarnated and comes to the earth. There's, there's this large gap of time, and during that time, Israel continued to fall away from God. They continued to rebel. And so there were a group of Jewish priests who began to try to call Israel back to faithfulness, and they were called the Pharisees. 
But unfortunately, over time, they gained more and more cultural power. And then when the Roman Empire swept through and took over Israel, the Pharisees found themselves in a very odd scenario of having a lot of cultural power. And very unfortunately, they began to abuse it so that they became just legalistic. And they made all of these extra rules that all of the faithful Jews were supposed to keep uh, that were outside of the Scriptures. And, and so when we meet the Pharisees here in the New Testament, this is a group of guys that we don't like. They are a bunch of hypocrites. They're hard-nosed. They're not easy to get along with. And Nicodemus is not just one of them. It says that he's a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus essentially is the teacher of the teachers. He is a Pharisee among the Pharisees. He is a guy who knows a little bit more than all of the rest of them. And it says that, that this man, there in verse 2, he came to him, talking about Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, we're not told exactly why he comes at night, but it, it it's kind of falls logically that he comes to Jesus at night because he wants this to be a private meeting, most likely. He doesn't necessarily want everybody else to see him. He wants to be able to have a, a conversation with Jesus that's not in the middle of the daytime with crowds around. But how he describes Jesus unveils for us and it uncovers for us something about Nicodemus's heart. He says to Jesus, we know that you have come from God because nobody could do all these amazing things unless God were with him. Nowhere in the statement does he ever make the admission that Jesus is actually the divine Son of God, which is the claim that, that John the Baptist has made when he sees Jesus and he proclaims that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It, it, it's, it, he's not willing to, to make that claim yet that this really is the Son of the living God. Instead, he's willing to hedge his bets. Well, we know that you showed up from God. Uh, we know that God is kind of with you. Uh, we, we can recognize that there's some kind of spark of mystical, magical, spiritual stuff going on with you. Otherwise, you couldn't be the town magician that you are. And so I'm, Nicodemus is like, I'm willing to admit that there's something special about you, but he's not willing to, to go all the way to say this is the one who, has, who is God incarnated in, in the flesh on the earth. Well, Jesus just goes right to the heart of the matter. And he says there in verse 3, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus gives no covering. He gives no quarter. He gives no place for Nicodemus to kind of hedge his bets around this. Instead, he goes right to the heart of the matter in the life of Nicodemus, and he says, you have to be utterly born again, or you cannot see the kingdom of God. To be honest, this is probably incredibly insulting to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus is a guy who has studied the Scriptures. He is a Pharisee. He has memorized much of the Old Testament. He probably has the entire Old Testament laws memorized. He can recite them. He has likely memorized much of the book of Psalms, much of the book of Proverbs. He is very well familiar with all of the Old Testament prophetical writings. He has been one of the guys who has stood in the temple and likely taught it publicly. And now this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is telling him, if you are not born again, if there's not a radical change in your life, you cannot even see, you cannot even perceive, you don't even know what direction to look in 
to find where the kingdom of God is. Meanwhile, Nicodemus is one of the guys who thinks that his people represent the kingdom of God on the earth. What do you mean I can't see the kingdom of God? I'm one of the people that's in the kingdom of God, he probably wants to reply. Verse 4, well, how can anyone be born when he is old? Now, Nicodemus engages the spiritual gift of sassiness, okay? This is, this is what happens now. Yeah, I mean, if you don't think the Bible's funny, you read a little closer. There is, I mean, he has engaged all the sarcasm that he's got. How can anybody be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born I mean, this is, he's not being philosophical. This is where he's like, hey, who do you think you are talking to me? I'm the teacher of all the teachers, and you're telling me this ridiculous biological idea that I've got to crawl back in my mother's womb when I'm an old man? This is ridiculous that this would happen. I mean, he doesn't even begin to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus is relying on some kind of biological reality, whereas Jesus is trying to drive to something much deeper. Jesus answered, it says in verse 5, "'Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God.'" Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus now draws a very distinct line in the sand. And he was like, look, everything that's born of the flesh, that's just flesh. The stuff that you can see, that you can feel, that you can perceive uh, with all of your human sensory perceptions, that's all it is. It's just the stuff of earth. It, it is what's flesh is flesh. But I'm telling you, you have to be born both of the, when he says the water, he means the spirit, he means the flesh, he means the, the birth, the, the human birthing process. Everything, you have to be born of water and the spirit. And then he says there in verse 7, don't be amazed that I told you this. Hey, Nicodemus, you're supposed to be one of the guys who is searching for the mysteries of, the, of, the, of what God is sending to the earth. You're supposed to be one of those who's searching through the spiritual philosophies and the understandings of how God works on the earth. He says, the wind, it gets to blow wherever it pleases, and you can't, you can't find its originations, but you know its power, you know its effect, you feel it, you hear it, and so it is with the Spirit of God. You don't know, you can't, you can't see it, you can't grab it, you can't put your hands on it. Essentially, you can't control the Spirit, but you know its power and effect. He says, if you're not born of both the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, this is, uh, in, in some ways, a very graceful uh, con confrontation with Nicodemus that he is having to now reassess what does it mean to get into the kingdom of God? What does it mean to enter into the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be rightly related to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is the creator of all things, the ruler of all things? Because Nicodemus is thinking, I've done all the right stuff. I got all the right heritage. I've been born in the right family. I've been born of the right blood lineage. And, and, but there's this other birth that I have to go through if I want to enter into the kingdom of God. I thought I had a free pass into the kingdom of God. I mean, after all, look at me. 
Nicodemus is thinking, I'm, I'm not just a nice guy. I'm a nice guy who's a Hebrew. And I'm not just a nice guy who's a Hebrew. I'm a nice guy who's a Hebrew that is a priest. And I'm not just a nice guy who's a Hebrew who's a priest. I'm a nice guy who's a Hebrew who's a priest who is a Pharisee. It's my guys that have been calling people back to faithfulness for a couple of centuries now. I'm one of the guys that teaches all the other guys how to do this. And you're telling me that somehow that I can't see and I can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless I go through some spiritual rebirth? So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? I mean, uh, sass and sarcasm have now been neutralized. How? You ever been at that place with God where, where you wanted change? You, you wanted grace? You wanted mercy? You wanted wisdom? And, and you just shot that arrow prayer up to heaven? How? Why? Now? What? What, what are we going to do now? Jesus knows the heart of Nicodemus, so he, has got to, he, he presses in. Uh, Nicodemus is, has got to be pushed on this issue. He says there in verse 10, Are you a teacher of Israel and you, you don't know these things? Sarcasm is now on the other foot. Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. You're still rebelling, Nicodemus. Centuries of your guys, the Pharisees, telling everybody to not rebel but Nicodemus, you're still, you're still stiff-arming. You're still saying no. You're still rebelling. Verse 12, if I had told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Jesus is pressing us. He says, I'm trying to tell you about the mysteries of eternity you're, you're, you're rebelling against me, but I'm trying to tell you about the mysteries of eternity. And there in verse 13 and 14, Jesus begins to make some self-disclosing statements that are going to be defining for how we understand Him. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, this phrase, the Son of Man, shows up throughout all four of the gospel narratives. It is the most common phrase that Jesus uses to refer to Himself. Jesus does not use the phrase, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Ancient One. Uh, he doesn't refer to Himself uh, in, in any other more common term than the Son of Man. And He does so because it is a very common term within the Old Testament prophets of the coming Messiah. It was a signal that the Messiah, when He comes, when He arrives with His salvation, that He is going to arrive as one of us. He is going to live a like, like ours. He is going to be incarnated in the flesh on the earth. He's not going to come like a, like a spiritual, ethereal ghost hovering above the dirt, you know, never being touched by the harshness of the world, but instead that when the Savior comes, He's going to be the Son of Man. 
He's going to live a life like you and me. And that is reflective in the life of Jesus. It says in the Scripture that he was tested and tempted in every way that is common to man, but he did not sin. We get insight into one of the uh, places where the enemy comes and tempts Jesus. We see that Jesus uh, grows up in Nazareth. He lives for 30 years there in, in Nazareth as the son of a carpenter. Most likely, he has inherited the family business. He had a family. He had siblings. You know, he had a group of people that knew who he was, that watched him grow up. Jesus is a guy who is acquainted with grief. He cries at the graveside of his friend Lazarus when he dies. He understands mourning and lament. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is God come in the flesh. And he says to Nicodemus, nobody can understand the things of heaven except for the person who came from there. And then he says there in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In the Old Testament, there is this one place where the, the Hebrew people, before they're Israelites, okay, so they're Hebrews, uh, descendants of Abraham, but they have become slaves in Egypt. And, and God delivers them from that slavery, and they go out into the wilderness to, to go and to take the, the land that is promised to them, but they doubt that God can actually give it to them. They, again, they rebel against the sovereign nature of God, and so God says, you're going to be disciplined. Because you doubted me, you're not going to get the promised land. Instead, you're going to have to wander through the wilderness for a generation, and then you'll be able to enter into the promised land. And while they're wandering through the, the wilderness, they kept rebelling again against God's sovereign rule. He kept giving them food. They kept asking for more. They kept complaining against Moses, saying that he wasn't a good enough leader, and God kept disciplining them over and over again. And at one particular point where they had been particularly nasty against Moses, uh, God's anointed leader of the Hebrew people, God then sends poisonous vipers, snakes, into the camp of the Israelites to bite them. And the people who get bit get very, very ill. And so, of course, they cry out to Moses, and they said, we're so sorry, we've done it again. Would you please pray to God that he would save our lives and that we wouldn't suffer anymore? So Moses, of course, does, and God says to Moses, I want you to take, I want you to smelt down uh, some bronze material, and I want you to make a snake, and I want you to hang it on a pole, and everybody who looks to it will be saved. This is the symbol uh, of God's deliverance. And most, uh, most theologians believe that the, that the snake of bronze that Moses makes, that he hangs it horizontally on a vertical pole, thus foreshadowing the cross of Jesus. And he says, just like Moses had to hang that serpent on a pole, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, and everybody who believes in Him, who looks to Him in faith, will have eternal life. This is probably a puzzling thing for Nicodemus, because Nicodemus has relied on so much of himself to have favor before God, and now he's got to rely on somebody else? He's got to look to somebody else in faith to have eternal life? And then comes perhaps one of the most well-known scriptures of uh, verses of the entire Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, it was read to you a little bit earlier, and it's going to sound a little bit different in your ears. 
I, I remember memorizing this verse as a child out of the King James Version of the Bible as a few hundred years old. I'm, I'm not a few hundred years old. The translation is, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him, believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In this modern translation that I like to lean upon, it reads a little bit different on the front end. For God loved the world in this way. Uh, the reason it's translated different is because our English language changes. Uh, when the Scripture was translated a few hundred years ago by the translators that King James uh, had, uh, had commissioned, the idea of for God so loved the world meant the same thing to them in the English language that it does to us here of for God loved the world in this way. You see, nowadays when we say I so, like when I say, like my wife Angie is sitting right here, and, and I, I will say to you, I so love Angie. I mean, I so love her. And what do I mean? I really, really love her. I have an intense, large capacity of love for my wife. And I, and I would say that I love uh, hamburgers with a very different kind of tone in my, in my voice. I mean, I do love hamburgers, but I really love Angie. Well, that's when John writes his gospel, and, and in this particular verse, he was, in the original Greek language, he was not talking about the capacity and the enormity of God's love. The original Greek language is about the method, the manner of God's love. Here's the way that God loves the world. Now, we can see from all sorts of other places in Scripture the capacity of God's love, the enormity of God's love, how it is that God's love is intense and grand and huge and wonderful in, in every kind of way. But in this particular place, Jesus is communicating something to Nicodemus, not in the amount of God's love, but in the method of God's love. And he says, you know, the Son of Man is the one who knows how to get to heaven because he's been there. And the Son of Man is the one who needs to be lifted up high and on a pole, and people who will look to Him will believe and be saved. He says, because this is the way that God loves the world. Here's the way that God loves the world. He sends, He gives His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That is the gospel in a single sentence, that God loves you, the world, in this kind of way, that He gives up His Son, so that if you will believe in Him, you won't eternally be under the judgment for sin but that you will have an everlasting life. Now, I just want to say, you guys have met my sons. You met Andrew, big, boisterous personality, deep, resonant voice, going to be famous radio guy one of these days. Lord, I'm praying so. Uh, we're all relying on him for our retirement. <laughs> and you've met Chris, Chris studying to be in the ministry, uh, sophomore in college, a little bit quieter, kind of a renaissance kid. We're all, our, our joke at our house is we're all playing for second place behind Chris. Um, good kid, he preached here last summer, you know, making his way in the world. And I, and I just want you to know that as your pastor, 
Like, I love you. I, I care about you. I care about your aches, your pains. I care about you when you fall down and you bust your knuckles. I, I care about you when, you're, when your joints hurt or when your heart hurts, when you have encountered grief and loss. I love you, but you can't have my kids. I, I'm not giving up my kids for you. Like, if it comes down between the death of my kids and, and anything else, like, I'm choosing my kids. But God loved me. Like, in all of my faults and all of my sin and all of my failures and all of my jacked up, messed up, completely broken kind of life, God loved me. God loved you in this kind of way that He sends His Son to die for us. It says, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him and anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But here's the here is the, well, the warning and the alert to all of us. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. That's the that's the cautionary word here. Is that if you've not believed in the name of Jesus, if you've not trusted in his 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 sacrifice on your behalf. It's not that there is a judgment coming, it's that the judgment is present, it is current, it's you're living under the judgment of God, you're, you are already condemned. It's not that he's going to decide later on, were you nice or not, were you good to your neighbors or not, you know, did you live a nice moral life, it's that there's judgment on us already for our sinfulness, and that it's through faith in Christ that the judgment gets lifted. There's too many of us that think, oh, I'll, I'll handle the judgment whole thing later when it comes. It's not that it is coming later. It is present for your neighbors. It is present for the people you love. It is present for you if you have not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior. And he says there in verse 19, this is the judgment, present tense. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because of their, their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light. We've already seen in the Scriptures that Jesus is the light. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be, catch this, accomplished by God. Not even the good things that we do are accomplished by us. So that the works that we do in the light, that even those things are accomplished by God. When I read through this whole passage and I see the gift that we have here, and I see the caution and the warning that we are given, when I see the opportunity, uh, what I want you to understand what I want you to come along with me on this idea is that we are Nicodemus. That's who we are. We're Nicodemus. We are the ones searching and scraping for meaning and identity in this world. We are the ones hoping, and we are the ones hurting. We are Nicodemus. And the, and the negative part of Nicodemus is that Nicodemus is trusting in his ethnic heritage and his religious efforts 
to make him acceptable to a holy and a righteous God. He is saying, but, but wait a minute, I was born of the right bloodline. Wait a minute, I've got the right lineage and heritage. I, don't you know who my mama was? I mean, my mama was a good saintly woman. Like, do you not know who my grandfather was? I mean, he was a patron of the religion. Don't you know who I am? And that's the problem, is that our identity is utterly faulty before God. And, and he, wanted to be, he wanted to be justified by his religious efforts. I'm a ruler. I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher of the teachers. I'm a guy who tells everybody else how to be moral. And Jesus is telling him, none of it matters. None of it matters. Your, your, your physical heritage doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you've been born of the flesh into the right ethnicity or into the right family or into the right scenario or into the right socioeconomic class or that things were easy for you. That's not a sign of your blessing. It doesn't matter that you were born into a place where you had to suffer and you had to figure things out and you had to work hard. That doesn't matter. You've got to be born of the Spirit because not your heritage and not your religious efforts are enough to please a holy and a righteous God because we need the healing that comes by Jesus because we are utterly devoid of spiritual life on our own. We are the ones who live in the dark. And Jesus wants to replace our broken identity. The healing that we need is not, it's not physical. The healing that we need is spiritual. You need a healing of your identity so that if you have been trusting in, I was born in the right family, and I had a really good mom, and I was born in the right place, and I've been a really good person, and, and I have been a really religious kind of guy who made sure that people were taken care of in our congregation, and I've got a great track record of attendance, and i got a great track record of giving, and i got a great track record of service, but you don't have Jesus, then you're still living in the dark. And he wants you to find your identity in his redemption and his e and eternal life in his sacrifice. That, that's what Jesus desires for you today, is that you will find your identity not in what you have accomplished or in who you think you are reputation-wise before the rest of the world, but that you will find your identity in his redemption and you will find eternal life in his sacrifice. Because as good and as moral and as upright and as nice as you think you can be, none of it is ever going to reach a standard where God says that you are perfect and you can come into the kingdom of God. It is only through the perfection that Jesus showers upon us through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave that we can find our identity made whole. And when you do, let me remind you then of what the Bible says God makes of you when you are redeemed by God. He says that you will be the salt and the light of the world, that you will be made complete in Him, that you will be utterly loved by Him, that you will be worth delighting in, that you will be forgiven and redeemed, that you are beautiful, you are more than a conqueror, you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, that you are God's handiwork, that you are set free, and that you are a new creation in Christ. This is who Jesus makes us into. 
when we are willing to let go of our identity that we try to root in the fact of who everybody thinks I am and what it is that I can accomplish on my own. I have seen a lot of really good, moral, nice people try to traipse through life never trusting in Jesus, die an utterly horrific, terrible death that had no hope on the other side of eternity. It does not matter that you've been good or nice. Nicodemus was good and nice, and Jesus confronted him and said, come out of the dark and into the light. Look to me and live. And today, I want to ask you to look to Jesus and live. Let's pray together.